0: Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 through 40 is where we're going to pitch our tent this morning. These are God's words. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep in silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not the God, Not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, doers, and preachers this morning of His holy and errant and infallible Word. Amen. Amen. All right, woo! Get hype, bro! Get hype! All right, let's go. How, how many of you have ever read the Bible and come across a verse or passage where you said to yourself, well, Lord, that's not the way I would have written that? <laughs> Let me start by saying that is not only an okay thing, but that is uh, somewhat a good thing, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll say this for this reason. To be sure... Um, that, that particular thing actually happens for different people in different verses. So not all verses hit people the same way. Scripture hits us all differently based on a number of different factors, like where you were born and how you were raised and who raised you and where you were educated and who educated you. So, for example, this passage is going to be a hard passage to walk through for some of us because even though it does not mean what it appears to mean when we first read it, and I'll I'll walk through that, at least I still believe that, but I still believe it means something that our culture will not accept. So for those of us that live in this culture, it's going to be harder to, to, to take this in Versus people that might read this that live in other cultures. They're, they may read this and say, okay, what's the big deal? But on the flip side, they may read something like Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, where it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. There are some people in some cultures that may read this, and they're not really into more of a pacifist type of approach to living. And they they may say, I'm deeply offended by that. But they may read this text that we're reading this morning and be not offended at all. And then there are some people probably in this room who may be offended by both. (laughs) And that's fine too. But nevertheless, this is a very very difficult passage for us to walk through in our culture, and it's going to challenge us in some ways. But by the time we get to the end of this, I hope that as we walk through these 15 very difficult verses and three extremely difficult verses, by the end, not only will we understand them and have a little bit of a better grasp on them, but we will trust Jesus more with them. And that's what I hope that we do this morning. So let's start first by remembering that these 15 verses are, are, are that, or that this text is bigger than the three verses that probably create the most controversy in our culture. There's 15 verses here, and the most difficult passage in the middle of this passage is not the main passage or the main point of this text. So while we actually will actually get to the most difficult part shortly, we still want to understand the main point of God's word here. So this passage that we're reading this morning is actually a summary of the last few chapters we were working through before our short break that we took as we had our anniversary guest speaker in uh, Palm Sunday and then, of course, Easter Sunday. But for those of you who haven't been here to follow along or who haven't been watching to follow along, the Corinthians have an issue with the right use of spiritual gifts. They use these gifts, unfortunately, to make themselves the focus. They use these gifts in loud and disruptive ways. They use these gifts in ways that divide them rather than unite them. So Paul over the course of the last three chapters has been working to reshape the Corinthians' understanding of how they use the spiritual gifts. And he's been working to root their use of the spiritual gifts in God's purposes. And so here in verses 26 through 40, Paul is kind of putting a bow on this, 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 this uh, kind of subject of gifting and use of gifting and purpose of gifting. And he puts a bow on it with these final 15 verses. So the first point I wanna highlight is the charge that Paul gives us in worship. A charge, and that is to decently and orderly worship for the building up of the church. The critical points of this passage are found in its first words, and found in its last words. Chapter 14, verse 26, read with me. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Paul's first point here is that these exercises of our gifts during worship are acceptable as long as they are being done for the building up of the body of Christ. And we've talked about this over and over and over again. Your gift should not terminate on you. Your gifting is for the edification and the building up of God's kingdom and God's church. Now, this list that Paul gives us, hymn, lesson, revelation, tongue, interpretation it's not intended to be a comprehensive order of service it's not a liturgy so to speak but Paul's point is that there is a number of things that are taking place during the worship gathering songs are being sung lessons are being taught prophecies are being given tongues are being spoken and Paul's point is that the songs should be sung and the lessons should be taught and the gifts should can and should be used as long as it is being done in a way that leads to the building up of the church. You see, our gatherings are not for showcasing. Our gatherings are not for elevating some and tearing down others. Our gatherings are not for clicks and divides. Our gatherings are for the building up, the collective building up of God's church. They are they are us coming together to be nourished and to be reminded of the goodness of Jesus and to be convicted of our sin and to have our hearts redirected from the temporal to the eternal. To the uh, to be uh, they they're for the purpose of us being fortified and edified and sanctified. They're for the purpose of us giving uh, of ourselves in honor of Christ and in love of our neighbor. Let's look quickly at verse 39. It says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is Paul's second part of his main point. His second point is that in order for the exercise of gifts, of the exercise of our gifts during worship to actually lead us to the building up of the body of Christ, they must be done with order and decency. It's not not enough to seek to have in mind the good of everyone. I have to actually have in mind operating within some framework, within some order, within some boundary, because I can have good intention but still be out of order and lead to bad impact on on the body. Does that make sense? In fact, the word order here, has a military connotation. It's as if Paul is saying the spirit operates within his own protocol. The spirit is not aimless in his operation. The spirit is not chaotic in his operation. He is not disorderly, so to speak. He's not unruly. To worship in the Spirit is to take on the nature of the Spirit in our worship. So in other words, our worship is not like a New York City traffic jam, blaring and clashing horns and people shouting all over one another and stepping over one another in order to get to the front of the line. Rather, our worship is like a New York City symphony. The stink notes coming together to produce a harmonious sound that elevates the whole and motivates not only those who have the privilege to participate and take part in it, but also those who are watching and observing it. Does that make sense? See, not only does chaos have an impact in terms of what it does to the body of Christ, chaos and disorder, but it also has an impact to those that are watching the body of Christ in their worship. So taking these two thoughts together, that corporate worship is for the collective building up of the church and and the collective building up of the church only happens when worship is done in decency and order. Taking those two thoughts together, we have basically our main thought for this passage. And it is this, God is a God of decency, not chaos, order, not confusion. And out of that order and out of that decency, he builds up his church and he builds up his people. So how does this look? That's my second point, because Paul, not only does he give us a call in terms of worship and how to worship orderly and, and decency, but he also gives us examples as to what this looks like to worship orderly and decency. And the, and the examples that Paul gives in our orderly and decency in worship is orderly and decency in the gifts of tongues, the gifts of prophecy, and even the expression of our gender roles. So to help us understand how order and decency looks in worship, Paul revisits two major subjects that he's been dealing with in this chapter, tongues and prophecy. Now, these two gifts are the ones that appear the most chaotic, right? He's been dealing with this chaos that has confronted the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He's been kind of picking it apart and helping them understand how to, bring, how to right the ship, if you will. And so he first begins with tongues. Tongues appears to be the most chaotic. And this example that he uses regarding tongues is actually rooted in intelligibility. In other words, in order for the church to be built up, the church must be able to understand one another. It can't be built up when there's so much lack of understanding between one another. And tongues without interpretation only breeds misunderstanding and confusion. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 27, he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and into God. You see, the rule regarding speaking in another language in the worship gathering is very simple. If there's no one present to interpret the language, then you keep that language between you and God. Now, I do not know if Paul has a hint of sarcasm in his statement, keep it between you and God, or is he literally encouraging us to keep it between us and God and just pray to ourselves? I don't know exactly, but here's what I do know unequivocally. Paul does not mean that you can keep it to yourself by speaking out loud. He, in fact, he says, be silent and keep it to yourself and to God, meaning that if you feel that this is your gifting, that gifting should not be expressed without the orderly establishment of an interpreter to be able to interpret that gifting. That is out of step to be out loud exercising this, this uh, speaking of another language without producing understanding through interpretation and by producing understanding, building up the entire body. Paul says, if you don't have that capability in your worship, remain silent. Notice also the limitation on how much speaking takes place. It says you got maybe, there may be 10 people that have this gift, but two or three is enough. Does that make sense? If any have the ability and gifting to speak in another language, limit the amount of people to two or three, not at the same time even. Let one person come and speak, get an interpretation. That person takes a seat, the other person gets up, they speak Then you get another interpretation, that person takes a seat, another person gets up, that person speaks, and then they have the third interpretation. You see, many of us can have a gift, but there is only so much capacity that the church has to receive those gifts during one sitting. An overwhelmed church is still an unedified church. Does that make sense? So Paul limits even the expression of the gifting to two to three. He said, that's enough. You know, there's only so much we can contain, so to speak. Next, Paul moves over to another one of the trouble topics for for the Corinthians prophecy. And he says in verse 29, again, let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. That's going to become profoundly important in just a second. Verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now notice, same limitations in number, two to three, that's enough. Same orderly, one by one. Shouldn't be everybody speaking at the same time. If you feel that you have a prophetic word, then you can speak. And and then once you finish, you can take a seat. The next person can come up and speak. And once they're finished, the next person can come and speak. And and then they can take a seat. The same goal, intelligibility, understanding. Hear what Paul said in verse 31. So that all may learn and all be encouraged. You, You hear that? Through intelligibility, through intelli- through through, um, through understanding, we are encouraged. Chaos, confusion, does not lead to encouragement. But Paul adds two wrinkles to this particular instruction regarding prophecy. The first wrinkle he says is, or the first wrinkle that I want to mention is that he says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. That's a, that's a very important, very important statement, particularly in any, in any church or in any tradition that holds to an understanding that, that, that the charisma or the charismatics, the gifts, the spiritual gifts are for us today. Even if you hold to that belief. Paul says, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, meaning that the spirit does not exercise that gifting in a way where you lose control. Does that make sense? If you lose control, the spirit is not of it. You say, well, what about in Acts chapter 2 when the the day of Pentecost and, and, you know, it says that, Many people looked on and they thought that they were drunk. Read it again. They didn't think that they were drunk because they were out of control. They thought they were drunk because they were speaking in languages that they did not know. In fact, when people begin to say, hey, these guys look like they're drunk, it's not, there's not like this moment where it's just, you know, continued confusion and chaos and there's no one to actually stop. No, somebody stops, right? Peter says, hey, hold on. Let me explain what's happening here. Does that make sense? Why? Because the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. They're not, they're not, they haven't lost control in the moment. They are very much in control of the faculties. And so it is with all of us in our exercising of whatever gifts that God has given us. He, he does not exercise them in a way of like almost possession-like where he takes over. Does that make sense, saints? So that's the first wrinkle that Paul introduces when he talks about prophecy. The other wrinkle that he introduces when he talks about prophecy is he says, let the others weigh what is said. One of the most difficult things that is happening in the church in this moment is false prophecy. One of the most difficult things even happening in the synagogues in in that age is the ability for someone to come in and say something that is inaccurate and outside of the word of God. The synagogues had people come in, guests, travelers, so to speak, to speak. But there were resident elders who were always there that as those travelers came in and spoke, the resident elders' responsibility was to hear it, process it, and judge whether or not it was in line with the word of God. You understand that? And so here Paul is saying If you have someone who is coming in or if you have someone even in the church that feels that they have prophetic gifting and they are speaking prophetically to the church, then there should be a company of people that are available, leaders in particular, because the Corinthian church and all the other churches of the early church patterned and uh, modeled most of their uh, worship style off of the, uh, the earlier Jewish synagogues. And so just like you saw in the Jewish synagogues where there were elders there present to judge what was being said, Paul says the same thing should be happening in the church as prophetic words are coming forth. In fact, one of the things that worked up the people when Jesus came in, and the Bible says he taught with authority, right? That he came in and, and he would open it up. He would open up his conversation, his, his, his preaching, his teaching with amen, amen, or verily, verily, or truly, truly, These were words that were actually reserved for the elders at the conclusion of a sermon or a teaching. Because at the conclusion, they would offer verification that what was said was indeed in line by saying amen. Yes and amen. Verily, verily. Truly, truly. But but here Jesus comes in and he says, I don't need y'all to say that. So he cracks it open. He says, verily, verily, truly, truly. And they're like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is, right? And we know who he thinks he is. We know who he is, which is why he says, I don't need your opinion. I don't need your verification. This is the truth. Regardless of whether or not you accept it or not, this is the truth. But that's the, that's the role here that we see being played out. And that's a very, very, very important role as we turn our attention to what we're about to speak about next, which is, whew, all right, let's go. Verse 30, I want to I read this in print for this one. So verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says, If there's anything they desire, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, let me me throw a few caveats your way. One, our own conditioning, and I've said this earlier, our own conditioning shapes how we see and embrace texts like these. We live in a culture that has wrestled with, historically, women's oppression, and women's equality, but we also live in a culture that ultimately is working to remove every distinction between man and woman. And so whether we see it or whether we feel it, this will land on us, what we read, this will land on us in different ways Or rather, I'm sorry, not what we're reading here, but what we read in the culture and what we see and what we observe will land on us in different ways and give us lenses to read the scripture through as we read it. Whether we see it, whether we know it's happening, it gives us lenses. So there are many cultures, again, I mentioned this earlier, who read this text and have zero issue with it. But on the other hand, they come across commandments about fidelity and being the husband of one wife and have big issues with it. Why? Because their culture has conditioned them to see nothing wrong with that. So they are reading the text with those lenses. Does that make sense? But this is a book about God, by God and for God meaning that it will transcend all times and all cultures and all customs, but it also means that it will push up against every time and every culture and every custom in its own unique way. Saints of God, the last thing you ever want in your life is a book that's supposed to be about God but sounds like you wrote it. Because whenever you come across that book, the revealed God at the end of that book will be you. You don't want a book that's supposed to be about God, but sounds like you wrote it. There has to be some things in that book that you would be like, I wouldn't do that if I was God. Well, that means you're not God. Amen. Praise God. That means you're not God. That's a good thing. Secondly, caveats, caveats. Let's talk about caveats first. Trust the scriptures for it has the final say. Not the culture, not my opinions, not my previous previous experiences. We all come here ready to be challenged in our own preconceived notions because we believe that behind this book is not only a holy God who is perfectly righteous, but also a good God who is mighty to to save and withholds no good thing from his children that will lead us to life and to righteousness and godliness. So we must trust him even when his thoughts cut against our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He does not think like us, and that is okay, and that's a good thing because he is God and we are not. Third caveat, remember that Jesus held fast to the word that preceded him in the law and the prophets and that succeeded him in the apostles. To follow Jesus is also to follow the word. Never will you ever hear Jesus say about the word, ah, man, that's a little outdated. You don't have to worry about that. Oh, that's so old-fashioned. Disregard that. Oh, that's not relevant for you guys in your day and time and culture. When he looks to the words that preceded his arrival to earth through the prophets, through Moses, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When he looks to the words that will follow his departure from earth through his apostles, he says in John chapter 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words he's saying they're going to tell you what needs to be heard about me in my ways. Peter talks about that that in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse Uh, Verse 21, he says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. He's talking about the prophets and the apostles, that they didn't just speak to be speaking as they spoke. The Holy Spirit was carrying them, meaning that those words had divine authority, including Paul's. So when we get to Paul's words, we can't say, oh, Paul just doesn't know what he's talking about right here. No, Paul is being carried along by the spirit as he's speaking. Last caveat is God is good. God is good. Which means that that which he charges us with in his word will ultimately be for our good as well. All of it. Now, I mentioned to you a moment ago that the early church patterned their structure, much of their structure, off of what they saw and adopted through the Jewish synagogues. One of those patterns or one of, one of those pieces was the judging of those that were speaking. There were elders that resided in those cities that were responsible for protecting the word that was being spoken and shared. So if someone came and they brought false prophecies or false teaching, false doctrine, those elders that were there would say, no, 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 let's get them out of here. Does that make sense? And so I have no idea why that happened. I thought I was on do not disturb. Who doesn't know I'm preaching, by the way? First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, it says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Let's talk about what this cannot be. This cannot be total silence. And you say, why is that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, it says, but every wife, talking about a wife in the setting of worship, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven." Now, most of us turn all of our attention towards the head covering discussion, but what's what's buried in the head covering discussion is a woman that is praying or prophesy prophesizing rather Acts chapter 2 verse 16 through 18 it says but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel so in that same pentecostal moment that we talked about where they were very much in control of their faculties as as the lord as the lord brought the spirit down and they begin to speak in other languages and people said, these guys look like they're drunk. And then, and then they said, no, 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 we're not drunk. This is one of the things that they said. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. This is what the prophet, I won't say Joel again, I see it and I think about Noel. The prophet Joel, this is what the prophet Joel said. Women and men, sons and daughters, maidens, or male servants, female servants. So it's not talking about total silence because there is a role of speaking, which is why we invite our sisters to pray with us and for us in church, and which is why we invite our sisters to read Scripture with us and for us in church. What is it saying then? I keep talking about this idea of the elders, that the elders were tasked with reviewing the remarks of the guest preacher of the day and judging them as true or not true. And so when Paul talks about being silent after he has already given us license for women to speak, I think Paul is speaking about being silent in the role of the authority that comes with judging the words of the prophetic. In other words, what I'm saying is that Paul is in line with his other comments in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says this. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I believe, and I got a lot of scholars that are behind me on this one, but I believe that what Paul is encouraging them towards in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is to remain silent as it relates to operating with elder like authority in judgment. Because he's told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the role of elders teaching with authority is reserved for the elders. He's, in fact, in first, oh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then right after 1 Timothy chapter 2, we have 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the qualifications of the elder. And what does he say the qualifications of the elder are? He says the qualifications of the elder are that they be, what, men, husbands of one wife. so when you look at the spiritual dynamics in terms of how God has, in fact, Paul says, as the law says. And what do you mean by that, Paul? Because I don't know anywhere where this is written in the law. Go back to the garden. You go back to the garden and you see that God sets order for the institution of family. And then he, Paul highlights that order. In First Timothy, right after he, or right after he says what well, we just read about, about exor- or teaching and exercising authority over men. And he goes back to creation to point to and justify why that's the case. And Paul has already done the same thing in First Corinthians chapter 11. When we read in First Corinthians chapter 11, and he said what? He said, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man. And so he talks about this creative order. In terms of family, but also church life. Now, why is this hard to follow? We've talked about it one reason, culture. Here's another reason. Because sometimes men can be really, 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 really bad sinful leaders. And the other reason is in that sinfulness, we add and add and add and add more requirements. And so even though we hear that Paul says that prophecy and prayers for sisters, and even though we see where the, 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 the prophets of old spoke about the day where the men and women will prophesy, we say, well, I don't know about that, you know, and praying, I don't know about that either. And Reading scripture, I don't know about that either. Here's here's what we want to do, okay? We want to give freedom where God gives freedom and does not speak. And we want to restrain where God restrains. So our sisters here are, are present with us with gifting to be exercised. And in any way that we can leverage their gifting, we want to leverage it. Does that make sense? And so when God says, hey, you know, and so like in your home, God says the husband is the head. That doesn't mean the husband has to balance the checkbook. Does that that make sense? If the sister, if the the woman in that home has gifting, then it's the husband's responsibility as head to leverage that gifting in every way that's possible. Does that make sense? And the same thing in the church. If the elders are considered to be leading the church and God says, okay, the elders are supposed to be men then it's the elder's responsibility to leverage all the brothers and all the sisters in every way possible, does that make sense? That God will allow. And so, that, and so that's what's happening in 1 in, in Corinthians is that there is areas that God does not allow women to exercise in roles. And in those roles, He calls women to trust him. Does that make sense? He calls women to trust him. In fact, this is what he says to everybody in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 36. Look with me. It says, or was it from you that the word of God came or are you the only ones it has reached? I love what Paul says here because he's talking about two different, notice there's two different times here. Was it, was, it, was it you that the Word of God began with and showed up? Or was it only you that it reached? Did it stop with you? In other words, are you the beginning and the end of this? You got opinions? Are you Alpha and Omega here? Did it start, did it start and stop with you? You got opinions. You disagree. But did it start and stop with you? You know, people say, well, I mean, you know, I, I just don't like, I just don't like that, right? And it doesn't have to be the gender roles. It could be prophecy. It could be tongues. It can be, it can be uh, sexual fidelity, right? One man, one woman, marriage. You know, we can come across a number of different things that we read in Scripture and say, I don't like that, but I still follow Jesus. Paul would say, are you Alpha and Omega? Did it, did it begin and end with you? The answer is no, it did not. In fact, he says in verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, there are many of you who profess to be prophets. Will hear this prophetic word or hear this apostolic word from one who was sent by God. I'm giving you the instruction. This is the instruction that I give in every church. This is how the church is to govern itself. This is how the church is to be ordered and structured. And if you don't want to listen to that, then you're not recognized. In other words, you are not the prophet that you think you are. And And also I think there's a hint of judgment even there where it's, You know, if you operate in this posture continually where you're constantly bucking against that which God has said, then you aren't the Christian that you think you are. The saints of God hear God's word and they say, okay, did God say that? Okay, then I obey it. Do I understand it all the time? Maybe not, but God said it. I'm going to align my life with it. So wrapping up, there are going to be plenty of times in your journey through Scripture that you are going to come across passages like this that initially, where initially you're going to say, well, Jesus, I would probably would not have put that in there. And those are times, those times aren't going to be the exact same times as your neighbors. And they're not going to be the exact same times as other people across the world. They're going to be different times. However, When you come to those times in scripture, these are the two questions that you should ask yourself. Number one, has the Lord said it? And understand it, unpack it, unravel it in all the different ways that you can. Turn it up, you know, turn it up, look at it from different angles. And you say, you come to the conclusion, okay, the Lord has said it. Then the next question that follows is, is the Lord good? Is the Lord good? Because when we are wrestling with that which God has said and we come to the conclusion that God has said it, then the reason why we are wrestling with it now is because we believe that us following what we say is better than what God has said. And So after you find out that God has said it, you must ask yourself, is then the Lord good? And the answer is a resounding yes. How do we know? Because God gave you Jesus. We know that he is good because he gave you Jesus. We know that he is not interested in your misery because he gave you his son. We know that he is interested in your joy because he gave you his son. We know that he is not interested in keeping you bound because he gave you his son. And so as a people who are not God, we should expect to come across verses several times in our journey that we read and we say, well, Lord, that's not the way I would have written it. But when we do, the goal is not simply to ignore it, nor is the goal simply to or necessarily rewrite it. But the goal is to understand that if this is what the Lord is saying, then the Lord is good. So even when I don't trust him, I will or or even though I don't understand him, rather, I will trust him and obey him. Because I know that trusting him and obeying him will lead to a deeper joy and lead to a deeper freedom for me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.